I'm Jeff Cohen. Rachel Critch is the Executive Director of Project Ezra, an organization that helps Bergen County, New Jersey residents find employment opportunities and live financially responsible lives. Her journey took her from California to New Mexico to the East Coast. She and her mother became observant to a point and then they moved into an Orthodox community. When I came here and saw how focused the community was, how there was a cycle between Shabbos and Yantif and schools and camps, and there was an entire ecosystem of a community, it just made me think like, this is where, this, I, want, I want to be part of this. This is what I want to be part of. And I said to my mom, I was like, I, I think we should stay here. Rachel Critch's journey is just ahead. Rachel, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate you taking the time. So you're in New Jersey today, but you were born in Berkeley, California. Is that right? That is correct. So tell me a little bit about the Jewish community in the area when you were a kid. Uh, when I was growing up, we were members of a reform synagogue. We were relatively affiliated in the sense that we had Friday night Shabbat dinners and we, you know, celebrated the major holidays. We would have special challah on Rosh Hashanah that had sprinkles on it. I remember this vividly and I would ask for it during the year and went, no, you can't have it during the year. I guess that was a real strong halacha in our house when I was little. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think the community was Jewishly culturally centered, but not... Like we had no exposure to religion, no re to religious Judaism, I should say, or observant Judaism. Did you have any perspective on observant Judaism as a little kid? Had you ever met a single person who was observant or seen any of their customs? Like, I just don't even have that memory. I may have. Like, I really am coming from I'm zero in this because had I met anyone and seen the customs, I would have probably just filed them away as similar to whatever we did only because... I guess I did have exposure. We had Kiddush every Friday night. We never washed for challah. Now that I'm thinking, you're making me really think back on those Friday night dinners. <laughs> but I don't think I ever saw something like that till I was in New Mexico. It's amazing what you remember as a little kid, like just certain things that stand out, like you were mentioning the sprinkles. And I have these visuals of dipping apples in the honey. And I know you have a story about a giant menorah in San Francisco and the impression that left on you. Yeah. So when I was about three or four years old during the holiday season, I said to my mom, I just see Christmas trees everywhere. I don't see menorahs anywhere. And I guess this is in the early 80s when now if you go around in areas that there are a lot of Jews, even in Berkeley or San Francisco, you're going to see, you know, the token menorah somewhere. But we weren't seeing any of that. And my mother had like this freak out. She's like, no, nope, we have to take her to see a menorah. And at the time is when Chabad was starting, I guess it was the early years of them putting up giant menorahs places. So we went to Union Square in San Francisco and she said, no, we're going to the Union Square and I'm showing her this giant menorah. And I don't remember the first part of the story. I don't remember complaining or saying anything about it. That's, you know, family lore that you get. But I vividly remember being at Union Square in San Francisco and this menorah seemed, I mean, it, it probably was really big, but I was clearly very small. So in proportion <laughs> to me, it was giant. And I, I, to be completely honest, I kind of remember being schlepped there and it was cold. I'm like, why are we here? Like it didn't click at that moment, but I remember so vividly seeing it. Did you have a sense of why she was doing that and what message she wanted to share with you? Yeah, I think now as an adult, I understand it as an adult and a mother. She wanted me to see that we were 
part of society and what we believed was valued and on display the way that everything, all the Christmas trees were on display also. And that we, not to compare Christmas with Hanukkah, but to see that we were part of the community as well. And not just these other people who just didn't do what everyone else did. But it clearly made a huge impression on me. And then your family moves. You leave Berkeley, California, and you head to where? Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I'm about eight years old. And it had nothing to do with religion or Judaism. It was for many other reasons. We packed up and moved in the middle of the school year. So I started after winter vacation at my new school in second grade. And we went from sunny California to very snowy New Mexico. And we rented a house for the first month we were there that was in old town Santa Fe. So it didn't have heat. and Like it was a whole mess. I don't know where my mother found this. We moved very quickly after. But it was, but that was the next step. And that actually was the first step unbeknownst to us on our family's journey to becoming observant. So how would you contrast what you were experiencing in Berkeley compared to what you were now seeing in Santa Fe? So at that time in the early years, it was even less than what I saw in San Francisco because there was a very vibrant and active reform synagogue in Santa Fe, Temple Beth Shalom, and it's still there. And I was in the Sunday school and youth programs. Well, Santa Fe is a very Catholic town. I'm very, very Catholic. So I had a few Jewish friends, like in second and third grade, you know, growing up in the public schools there. But I actually experienced things like people having never met someone who was Jewish. Now, today, Santa Fe has a Chabad, a modern Orthodox shul, an OU shul, actually. But it was a Catholic haven when we got there. Did the people you met talk about some of the stereotypes that they thought about Jewish people compared to what they were seeing when they actually met you? Yeah, so probably in ninth or 10th grade, I was out with a group of friends and another friend of a friend was there and somehow it came up that I was Jewish. Not sure how, but it did. And in this conversation, he looks and he's like, so wait, you don't celebrate Easter? Like Easter, I was like, no. (laughs) And he's like, but you celebrate Christmas, right? And I was like, no, no, I don't. And he, he literally couldn't handle it. Then he was said, that's when I first heard the horns on the head theory. Like, do you, do you have, I thought Jewish people had horns. I was like, Horn? what? Who, what? <laughs> and I'd never even heard of that. I said, do we have horns? Like he was like, he had never even thought about what it would, he just, he had no concept. And there were a lot of people who would make anti-Semitic jokes because they just didn't know not to. Like It was just part of the culture in a lot of areas. So, so it was an interesting contrast. I think in some cases, when you live in areas where you're less welcome, you cling closer to your Judaism than when it's easier to be assimilated, if that makes sense. So maybe now that I'm talking through it, this is like a therapy session, Jeff, that maybe that also has something to do with our family kind of moving towards being more observant. Now, you mentioned the local Chabad. So was your family getting involved with that at this point? At Temple Beth Shalom, there was the new building. And then there was like the old building. And the old building was actually an Orthodox minion with the however many Orthodox families who lived in town. And at the time, there was no Chabad, official Chabad family who lived there. There were Chabad type people, how do I like people who were, they were not official Shluchim, but like they were Chabad. And it was kind of um, an ad hoc group. And I don't, I don't remember, I have to tell you, how we ended up 
kind of meeting and hanging out with them and getting invited for Shabbos because again, that was probably when I was eight or nine years old. I just don't, I don't remember when the transition happened, but it did. This is a more of a common part of the story. There's a family, they start inviting you, you start coming more, they start, you know, that whole very, what what now I think is used to a very common cure of conversation. And when our family got so involved and they learned about Chabad and Shluchim and the whole process, they actually helped reach out to the central Chabad in Crown Heights to tell them we need a, we need Shluchim here. And so my family was involved with helping get them. And I don't know the process again, but I remember when they got there and I remember when we found them a house and they started their minion and that whole process. Again, we were not at that time yet fully observant, but that was where we were affiliated more so. And we were no longer really affiliated with the reform congregation anymore. Did you get to have a typical bat mitzvah while you were in Santa Fe? So luckily, this is interesting. I have dyslexia and visual perception disorder. And that makes it very hard for me to learn written language at all. So English was the first step. And my mother for years was really worried about me learning how to lane because and I was in Hebrew school and I was not picking this up and it was really hard and she had a she was very stressed out. And then we meet, you know, we start getting involved in the more uh, observant community and they go, oh no, we don't do it that way. <laughs> and they would do it at 12 and it's just like, we don't do laning. And my mom was like, this is great because now <laughs> she doesn't have to, it also was different. Like it wasn't the way it even is in, at least in our community, that either you if you lane in your bar mitzvah, great. If you just say an aliyah, that's great. Like it doesn't, every, I think that's pretty common also in the Jew, Orthodox Jewish community that at a certain point you do what you do and that's great. In our community at Temple Bless Shalom, there was no deviation from the path of what you do at a bar and bat mitzvah and everyone did the same thing. And I think it caused my mom a lot of stress. I didn't know that it was causing her stress. I wasn't aware, which I guess shows that she was a great mom to protect me from that. So it was like kind of a excuse like, Oh, we're, we're more observant now. So we do it differently. But on the other hand, it also, which was true, but on the other hand, it was to kind of save me from that embarrassment that I wasn't necessarily going to be able to have the skills at the time to do what all the other kids were doing. So we had this big bat mitzvah. It was in our backyard in Santa Fe in December, December in Santa Fe, is very cold and snowy. You would think, everyone thinks Santa Fe is always hot and sunny. That is not the case. It is a great winter wonderland. So we had tents and a heater and my mother wanted to make it fully kosher. And as you can imagine, there were no kosher caterers in Santa Fe. So she had a caterer come from Denver, kosher our kitchen and cook all the food in our kitchen. And the whole bat mitzvah was, and it was also right around Hanukkah. So we were having latkes. And for some reason, we insisted we had to have, we had to have sour cream with the latkes. So the whole bat mitzvah was also dairy. It was crazy. It was a bat mitzvah that would be very familiar to my kids now, but not familiar to my friends at the time. And is your family now starting to take on some of these levels of observance that you're being exposed to? So at the time, yes, definitely my mom. She started really taking things on at first. I was always very into it. I think I was really drawn to custom and rules and and how things were structured. I would be, I guess, in and out of it because I was still in public school. It wasn't like a forced thing. Around a little bit after this point, my parents actually got divorced. 
So that changed the trajectory of a lot of stuff going on in our life. But again, at that time, my mother was really the one who was becoming more and more observant and I was following her along. And then I had my moments of, I really love this. This is great. And then my moments of, I just want to go out and go to a football game on Friday night with my friends. But give me a few examples of some of the steps she was taking, some of the ones you were doing with her, maybe some of the ones you weren't quite yet ready to take on. So she definitely started keeping Shabbos. That was one of her first ones. Kosher was a little more complicated in Santa Fe than it is in other places. And Shabbos was a little easier, actually. She didn't really feel the need to go to shul, which was fine, because it was a two and a half hour walk. (laughs) So that was good. I would kind of make deals with her like, okay, this week I'll keep Shabbos until Saturday morning. We would, or I'm going to go out on Friday night, but I'm going to go out after we have dinner and light candles. Like there were certain, we kind of had like, I remember now like these like negotiations in this process because she wanted me to be more involved and I kind of wanted, but I also was in an environment that wasn't at all, like I didn't have anyone to really like do Shabbos with, do kosher with, do anything with. So it was, it was me and her and she had a peer group which I think made it a little easier for her. But really Shabbos and Yant, if I remember, was really where we started. I don't think we became fully observant and cautious until we got to New Jersey. So your mother is on this like clear journey to becoming fully observant. Where are you feeling in terms of like supporting that journey and appreciating what she's trying to do? Putting aside what you're personally doing, how are you feeling about this journey that she's choosing to go on? Sometimes I was really into it and excited, but I think a lot of our fights a teenage fight stemmed from that now they would have stemmed from something i've now that i have teenage girls i know (laughs) they're gonna come at you no matter what but that was really where we had a lot of uh friction i'm talking today with rachel critch the executive director of project ezra so rachel there's another move as you continue your journey east where did you hit next so the summer between my junior and senior year of high school we I don't even really know what triggered it, but for the summer, we decided we were going to go visit friends in New Jersey. These are observant friends of my mother's and spent some time and it was my at my first exposure to modern orthodoxy. And now something clicked. I'm telling you, this is the most bizarre part of the story that makes no sense to anybody. So don't worry. Something I clicked. I saw like a real Orthodox community. I saw restaurants. I saw people doing Shabbos together in groups and it not being you were the different one. It was you being part of the community. And when I came here and saw how focused the community was, how together, how there was a cycle between Shabbos and Yantif and schools and camps and there was an entire ecosystem of a community, I think I really at that point, I guess I was 17 years old, felt like comfort in that. I needed that type of structure in my community life that I didn't have. And it just made me like, this is where this, I want I want to be part of this. This is what I want to be part of. And I said to my mom, I was like, I, I think we should stay here. And she was like, I don't And again, I don't know what possessed her to say, okay. <laughs> and I, I started to get to know girls that went to Bruria High School. And I went on a summer program that somehow I got into for a few weeks during that summer with some girls who were there. And that was really helpful. I'm trying to put all these little pieces together because it's a very strange, trans- very quick in- from transition from not just Saturday to Shabbos, but like Friday night football, you know, Santa Fe High to g- going to Bruria. I applied to Bruria High School. 
I hardly knew the olive base. Brea High School, if, for anyone listening, is, is not a school for someone who doesn't know what they're doing. It was four girls who had been through the system. And Mrs. Newman accepted me in the school. And I, honest to God, don't think she was in control of her. I think Hashem just took over and was like, nope, you're letting this kid in. Like, I was not the girl that you wanted in your senior class. Because, I, I mean, I wasn't a bad girl. But I wasn't a front, like, I wasn't the stereotypical from good girl. So how did you feel in that environment? I felt fine. I got put in a group, a class with girls who I'm to this day still incredibly close with. And they thought it was super cool. Like, oh, I came from, from their perspective, my, me being different was cool, was like fun and different. And they didn't judge me or care that I didn't have the background or know things. I remember going away with a group of friends on Shabbos once and I was like, oh, I don't know any of these Shabbos songs. They're like, great, we're going to teach them to you. Like it wasn't a def- it was the first time I was somewhere where if I didn't know something like that was cool. Like they were, I guess I got very lucky and got put with the right people. And it was a year that I gained confidence. Academically it was a little tough with the Hebrew but I flew academically. In the Hebrew stuff, they all kind of were like, yeah, that's cute. You, you, <laughs> We'll give you the test in English. And I did as well as I could. But when it came to my secular studies, it was just an unbelievable change. I had confidence because my academics were doing better. I had confidence because I was with a group of incredibly kind people who didn't think me being different was a problem. Do you also think that reflecting on your mom agreeing to stay in New Jersey and enroll you in Breweria, do you think she saw something in you? Given the journey that she was on, she started to see she's not fighting me so much on this. She's getting turned on to this idea of becoming observant, and that kind of was a catalyst to her taking these concrete steps to put you in the right environment? I, I have a feeling that you're you're very observant, Jeff. Yes, I think so. I think as, it was, as soon as she saw that I was kind of going in that direction and, and again, not fighting it. She probably was like, well, I don't need to be in Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Let's forget that. <laughs> and she made the move and I'm sure she gave a lot, a lot for it, but I'm sure, you know, a lot of things that my mom did were mostly, oh, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> but, no, a lot of my mother really did a lot just that wasn't good for her, but was right for me. And I think that move was really a big part of it. And probably a beautiful lesson for how you want to raise your own kids to sacrifice to give them a better situation. Exactly. Okay, so you finish Breweria after one year. What's the next step? So at that point, everyone goes, oh, are you going to seminary? And my mom and I are like, I'm not a nun. What are you talking about? Why would I go to seminary? Like, to us, we thought, we just got here. What are you telling us to do? (laughs) We found out what seminary was. It was, I graduated high school in 2002. And it wasn't a great year in Israel in 2002. It was like, I think the second intifada. We chose for us, it was the right thing to do was to not do a year in Israel, which I never did. But I took a year off. At that point, we moved to Brooklyn. And I was an assistant first grade teacher at a school called Crown Heights Yeshiva, which was not in Crown Heights. It's at the very end of Brooklyn near Kings Plaza Mall. And we planned that I would attend Stern College after that. And if I took a year off, I would be attending with the majority of my class who was going to Stern. So it kind of helped give me that gap year, even though I didn't get to go to Israel. And I still think I grew and learned a lot from that year. And then after that, then I started Stern College with my with the rest of my class. And I spent four years at Yeshiva University. 
And how did you then meet your husband? And what was his level of observance compared to where you were in your journey at that point? So no one in the world would have set my husband and I up if we hadn't been on our own. <laughs> there is some discrimination against Bali Chuva in our community. And at the time when you're dating, I think is when you really feel that a lot. You know, when you're more of an established member of a community, you've been here, it's not such a big deal. But when you're dating, it's, it's rough because there is a lot of stigma against Bali Chuvas. What happened? Why? Like, is it, are they normal? I love that one. Are they normal? <laughs> I hear that all the time. I'm not saying that my husband's family was like that or would have had any issue with it, but it wouldn't have been the first shidduch that would have been read to him, to say the least. So when I was at YU, I was part of WYUR, the radio station. And one night we did, we did this thing every year. We had like a marathon where we did like 48 hours straight, blah, blah, blah. And we'd have parties in the, in the studio and someone who was part of the radio station, who I'm also still friends with, knew Daniel and had him come like to whatever the party was. There was food. So, you know, college kids come. And he came and I met him and we just like he liked each other and started dating. And kind of it was a it's a why you love story. Why you really want to publish stories like this. Like, look what happens. We give you a great education and you get married. <laughs> so we my husband's background is um, the complete opposite of mine. He's from Los Angeles, California. He's from a family where he was born into a from family. He went to Black Hat Yeshivas his entire elementary school, high school, and he went to a very Black Hat Yeshiva in Israel. And he's my FFB street cred. And again, we would never have probably been set up together had we been going through a shit-off system, but we found each other that way. So take me inside some of those conversations you're having where you're getting to know each other, you're realizing his background versus yours, what people might think about those differences and how you're navigating that together as the relationship is getting more serious. He didn't have any sort of issues with it. Now his family, while on the outside, looks very, you know, black and white. Everyone has their stuff going on and their family was isn't so black and white. The creatures are... Uh, super dynamic and have a lot of different people in the family who have different levels of observance, different types. And I think that was also why to him, this wasn't like an issue. I also know that he felt that he kind of didn't choose this in his life. And he had a lot of respect that I, I chose to do all this. I was even more committed than the girls that he would have been set up with that might have been more, you know, born into the system. It wasn't really an issue. And now that I look back, it was like, all right, well, you've been from for a couple of years. I grew up from and we like each other and I'll help you with your Hebrew final. <laughs> and so where did you then choose to settle down and start your own family and begin a journey with kids? We met in March and got married in January. So <laughs> it was a pretty fast uh, transition. We, First started in Washington Heights for the first six months because because I think that's in our contract <laughs> as, as YU <laughs> graduates. We got, we got married in the middle of our senior year of high school, so we stayed in, in Washington Heights. We had that experience. But we're both suburban kids, and we decided that we needed to move into the suburbs. Daniel did not want to move to Teaneck. He felt it was too much like L.A., and we visited a friend who was living in Fairlawn, New Jersey, and the apartments were so much nicer than in Washington Heights, and they cost the same. So we're like, who cares? We'll make friends anywhere. We're nice. And we moved to Fairlawn. Uh, Fairlawn and we've been in Fairlawn, New Jersey ever since. We've been here now almost 
14 years. I've never lived anywhere this long in my entire life. I've never lived in a single dwelling as long as I've lived in my house in Fairlawn. I love it. My guest today is Rachel Critch from Project Ezra. So Rachel, how openly do you talk to your kids now about your own journey and where you came from? I try to be incredibly open about it. I don't like throw it in their face, but my older kids kind of know the whole story. They know their family who's Jewish, their family who's not Jewish, their family who's observant, their family who's not observant. They get it. Um, my younger ones, it's like watching the process. So I think just a few days ago, my eight-year-old asked me something about, said, oh, but mommy, you always kept kosher, right? Like, cause she ha- she's eight and she still thinks like, but you know, and I go, no, I didn't. And, and that, you know, I decided, and I kind of gave her a little, the eight-year-old appropriate version of the story. And she was like, oh, okay. And I could tell if I had done it differently, if I hadn't been so open with it, I was worried that maybe she would think something's wrong. If you don't keep kosher, then you're, you know, not good, or you're in a different position, like something negative. And I wanted her to understand that it's not a negative thing and we still care about everybody in our lives. And, and, and it's not a value or moral judgment on your character if you grow up one way or if you make certain choices. But in our family, this is what we do and this is what's important and this is what we believe Hashem wants from us. And therefore we do this. And it was a choice that was made, that I made to start doing this. And I, and, and I saw it click in her head like, oh, okay, okay, this makes sense now. And then I think they start asking what certain things tasted like. Oh, McDonald's. They all want to know what McDonald's was like. And I was trying to remember, and I'm like, I don't know, but I real, I think we liked it a lot. <laughs> you do know you can take them to the kosher McDonald's in Israel. I know, I think I'll taste. have to do that, and uh, so they'll see. Now take me back to the younger version of yourself in Berkeley and Santa Fe, and that early exposure to Jewish observance versus what you know now. How would you contrast your perspective then versus what you think about living an observant life today? I think there's two different times. I think when I was younger in Berkeley, I was a little kid, and a lot of what we did then is very similar to what we do now. The Friday night dinners, the Passover seders, the Hanukkah parties, the the things that our kids also are remembering. The contrast now is that I I see that there's more there's more of a breadth of observance than I was originally exposed to. And of course, when you're first exposed to something, you can only be exposed to one thing at a time. If you're exposed to everything at once, then you're going to have sensory overload and it's not going to be good for you either. And then as I started seeing that there were different opportunities and flexibility within it, but you still got that core community structure, people who take care of each other, who care about each other, who understand each other, that feeling of I'm part of something versus being separate from something was really what hooked me. And then finding that within that feeling of being part of something, I could kind of differentiate where I wanted to be on the spectrum, that there were options. I think that's what really connected me and got me moving forward. I love how you say this part of something, because I was in a fraternity in college with all secular Jewish friends. And when they ask me now what it's like to live an observant life, I say it's like being in the world's biggest fraternity. And I think that really was what really hooked me, going I, being part of the world's biggest fraternity. <laughs> I felt being part of something bigger than my, than me gave me purpose. What is my role in life? What, are, what career path do I want to take? And I think it shaped all of that. And as someone who's been on this incredible Jewish journey, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about starting their own progression towards observance. Don't be so intimidated. One a secret that I learned 
is no one really knows what they're doing ever. No matter how much yeshiva someone went to, no matter what, you know, families like, no matter what kind of cultural norms people seem to naturally follow that you're getting, you know, used to, nobody really knows what they're doing. So you're not the only one in the room that doesn't know what they're doing. And people are fine with it. Like, people are fine with that. There are people who grow up and go to yeshivas their whole life and they don't daven for the amud because they don't know how or they don't like to. And so if you go up and say, oh, I don't know how or it's not a thing I do, it's not like weird. Nobody knows. But you but you think everyone knows. You think that you're the imposter and that everyone else knows what they're doing and you not knowing is going to out you as the outsider. And part of, at least from my experience, wanting to be go on the journey was because I didn't want to be the outsider anymore. I want to be in it. And then I realized, no, even everybody inside has no idea what they're doing. Don't be intimidated. That's my number one. Don't be intimidated by everybody because no one has that together. And they all can appreciate when they find someone else who also doesn't have it together. I have to tell you, there are so many times where I ask a question to the rabbi or in shul because I feel like since I wasn't raised with this, I have a right to ask these questions. And then someone who's been observant, from birth will come up to me and say, I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been doing this for 20 years and I really had no idea why I was doing it, but I was afraid to ask because I, the expectation is that I should know why I do these things. Right. We don't always teach these things in school. We don't always teach these things in our family because maybe we don't always know. Um, our education systems changed a lot in the last 20 years, hopefully to more understanding. And I think that's another thing that we have to think about with doing in, internal care of which is if you know why you're doing something, you're much more likely to care about it and continue it. Or maybe if you're, the reason to you seems totally like, no, that's ridiculous, then, then maybe it's okay that you're not doing something arbitrary that you don't feel is right for you, but you're still keeping Shabbos and you're still keeping code. You're still part of the Kehillah, but there's certain things, parts of it that you understand better and make, you make that choice. And by making choices, you own those decisions and you're more strong in your Yiddishkeit because of that. This whole journey that you have been on, what is next? What do you hope to see happen for you, your husband, your family in the next two to three years? I, you know, I said this to my daughter the other day. We have to continue to always be growing, always grow in our Judaism, always grow in our professional lives, always keep growing and keep striving for the next best thing. She said something to me like, you know, I think it's better to go to a school that's like a little firmer than you are. Like a little bit from her. Like go, I'm like, yeah, because you always want to be stretched. You always want to push yourself to the next level. And I just hope that in our family, we continue to to do that, that we can, you know, we're very comfortable right now in our observance. And when you get mindful and you think of that, you go, is that good? Like you, it's okay to be comfortable for a little while, but comfort doesn't help you grow. So, all right, well, what is our next step? What is, um, like, what do we need to do? Do we want to take on something? Or are we comfortable with what we have? But maybe, you know, recently my husband, he, this recent cycle, Daf Yomi, he's been doing it every day, which he hadn't been able to do in the past. And that's new and exciting for him. So I'm trying, I think that we need to say, okay, we're comfortable and we're busy, but now we need to be mindful that we've gotten comfortable and continue to try to stretch. Because if you stay comfortable too long, they're just atrophy. Rachel, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Saturday to Shabbos and sharing your inspiring Jewish journey. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this very, very important podcast. I think a lot of people will get 
quite a bit out of it and they will feel heard and they'll feel seen. And I think people who have not had this journey will understand what it is like for the many, many people who are Bali Chuba in our community. You just gave us the best advertisement for a podcast. So thank you. <laughs> you, can, you'll, you can use all the words I said in any sort of <laughs> Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.